We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley with Bob Brandon, and we are continuing our book review of How the West Won by Rodney Stark. How are you today, Bob? I'm good, Hampton. Got a little bit of a slow start, but I'm good. You know, walked my dog early. It's cold. I mean, you're saying it's cold where you are. It's like in the low 30s. I'm probably around 10 degrees or so. Nice. I know. I know. Well, it's yeah, refreshing. I'll, I'll probably be on the golf course by 10 or 11. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Once you get so, to the 40, it's warm enough. <laughs> oh, it's for me. fair game. <laughs> so, uh, my dog's getting old, Hampton. I've been with that guy since he was eight weeks old. We've been inseparable. But, uh, he's how old is he? 12, 13? No, he's coming up on 11. Okay. But, but his breed, Hampton, that their, their window's about eight. Oh, oh he, he's. So he's- well past yeah. yeah big dogs don't live as long either right right but uh i love that guy and uh it'll be a sad day but we don't need to be sad hampton we've got god's material in front of us we're learning about how the west won and it's great it's a great study can i get us rolling this way <clears throat> i'd like to remind our uh listeners of three levels you might call it of perception i suppose if we took more time we might get a better word for for it but let's just call it perception for now and i don't want people to passively hold their perceptions i want them actively to hold it so the largest <clears throat> perception that a person has is their worldview. And worldview is dealing with these huge questions of humanity. You can simplify them by saying, where do we come from? Where are we going? What went wrong? How do we fix it? That's often held out as the basic worldview questions. And, and for our purposes right now, that's fine. We, mm-hmm. might, we might sharpen that later on. But you're, it's critical to not just hold but tightly hold a biblical worldview. So where do we come from? That's Genesis. (laughs) Where are we going? That's Revelation. What went wrong? (laughs) That's all the pages in between. And how do you fix it is all the pages in between. So in many ways, you could conceive of the Bible as a grand worldview. Um, Right. That, that I mean, that's how I do it. However, <clears throat> there's a little smaller perception underneath the large perception of worldview. And the so if we, if we called worldview a maxi perception, this next one would be a midi, M-I-D-I perception. And we call that the social imaginary. And that is almost by definition passively absorbed right we've pointed that out so many times right our favorite one is marie antoinette saying let them eat cake she never said that that was made up by rousseau 
She but, would have been five years old if you hey, followed. We're going to be revisited by Rousseau in this chapter. I, I know. I, yeah. And his buddy Voltaire. I know I, that jumped out at me. <clears throat> but so the passively held social imaginary can really steer you wrong. So don't do that. Don't believe the things that float around in our culture as fact. Um Here's let me give you a real life example of that. You know how I go into the swimmers and ask trivia questions. Well, you know, often I'll ask uh, Steve or some of the, you know, the pool manager, or the other people you run into, not just the kids. And last week I ran into John. He's a pool manager. And I said, hey, he asked me, hey, you got any trivia? I said, OK, uh, what was the very first university? And you remember our chapter on that, right? And it was Bologna. It, and uh, second was Paris and third was Oxford. Okay. But anyway, anyway, I said, uh, what was the world's first unit? And he goes, oh, it was some Muslim university. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, it wasn't. It was there, no, it's complete. Where'd you get that idea? And you could see it passively floating around in his head and of course when i said you know what okay where name it well he couldn't because there isn't such a thing but what how did he even get that idea right that's the social imaginary so <clears throat> the third level we could call the mini perception so maxi is your worldview midi is your social imaginary and then mini that's that's facts and details right you have to hammer that out in your life you got to get down to the uh, bare bones and different subjects and figure out what's fact and what isn't so that i'd call that uh, epistemology so you got worldview social imaginary and then epistemology and all of those take diligent effort to walk faithfully with the lord um, those things are required You've got to constantly sharpen your senses in those three areas. Then Hampton, <clears throat> I thought we would read Daniel chapter 10. It's a very interesting chapter, but we have to set that up a little bit because there's some items in there that um, a person in the ancient Near East like a Hebrew, Hebrew in the time of Daniel or earlier would have had no problem with this. Often in our, our day and time, our culture, this is a little more of you have to reconstruct this in your mind. It, it doesn't come as natural to us as it would have to them. But we go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Did you ever think, Hampton, how much Moses actually knew in his day that's hard to contemplate you know from a heavenly point of view moses knew a lot yeah um, even oh man earthly, you know being raised in the pharaoh's court house yeah yeah on earth and from a heavenly point of yeah. view i mean he was i you well i'm certain there was not a person that surpassed him in his day but we get to the end of the book of deuteronomy and we've laid out the structure of that book before i'm not going to do that but we're in the witness session section of an ancient near eastern suzerain vassal treaty between god and his people israel he's the suzerain like the king and they're the subjects and so at the end of this book, you get the witness, you know, we're going to make this deal. I will be your God. You will be my, my people. Here's how we're going to get along. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what's required of you and so on. So at the end, you have witnesses, like in a marriage, for instance, you have witnesses on your marriage license. So <clears throat> the end of Deuteronomy chapter 32, I want to read a little bit of this because it'll set up Daniel chapter 10. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let's pause. Right? Those are the witnesses, heaven and earth. Okay. Okay. My teaching will drop like the rain. 
My saints will drip like the dew as rain drops upon the grass and showers upon new growth. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. You must acknowledge the greatness of our God. As for the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just. He's a reliable God who is never unjust. He is fair and upright. His people have been unfaithful to him. They've acted like his children. This is their sin. <clears throat> they have not acted like his children. This is their sin. They are a perverse and deceitful generation. Is this how you repay the Lord, you foolish, unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator? He's made you and established you. Remember the ancient days. Bear in mind the years of past generations. Ask your father and he will inform you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided up humankind, he set the boundaries of the people's according to the number of the heavenly assembly. For the Lord's allotment is his people. Jacob is his special possession. Now, Hampton, doesn't that sound like <clears throat> what you know from Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, that God divided the earth up according to the heavenly realm? according to the angels and he took Israel and then distributed the other nations to different angels. Is that not what that looks like? Yeah, perhaps. Okay. So you're pretty familiar with the net Bible. No, a little bit. <laughs> so how about we read there? No, here's the, here's why I'm doing that. I'm pointing out the value of this Bible. There are many issues that you face when you translate. And what I love about the net is that they will tell, excuse me, tell you why they're uh, translating the way they are, right? They're giving you the raw data in the notes and telling you why they've reached certain conclusions. So, <clears throat> On, the, on this uh, verse, so he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the heavenly assembly. Okay. That's, the, that's a reference to the angelic realm. Here's what your Bible has. It has in quotes, the sons of Israel. Huh. He's saying the Masoretic text, it doesn't read according to the heavenly assembly, it reads according to the sons of Israel. So the idea perhaps is that Israel was central to Yahweh's purposes and all the other nations were arranged and distributed according to how they related to Israel. So you can see driver's commentary on Deuteronomy for that detail. For the MT, that's the Masoretic text, says, you know, sons of Israel, a Qumran fragment has sons of God, while a Septuagint reads angels of God. So sons of God is undoubtedly the original, undoubtedly Hampton, sons of God. <laughs> that's, a, that's a strong statement, isn't it? Yeah. For a conflicted passage, that's a strong statement. So is undoubtedly, and then you get the rest of the detail. But look, as you finish out that little paragraph of notes, you see Daniel chapter 10 in there. Mm -hmm. So yes. that's why I wanted to read this first. So that's part of it. Let's go back to our three tiers of perception. So that's a critical aspect of a Christian's worldview that God established the nations according to the angelic realm. And there are angelic rulers over different nations. So we're going to see that in Daniel chapter 10. So let's, let's. Well, read. and you remember the passage where Daniel 
uh, Gabriel comes. Yes. Yeah. I was yeah. detained because I was fighting. Yes. Yeah. Against the prince of another angel, basically, I think. Yes. Yeah. And so. Yeah, the Persian angel. And he goes, the, the prince of Greece is coming. <laughs> right. So that may be related to this. It's 100% related to that. And it's so foreign to our thinking, you know, the way we conceive of the world, and it shouldn't be. But let's read chapter 10, because you'll, you'll get a lot of that in this, this chapter. So Daniel's going to have this vision, and you get the vision in chapter 11, but chapter 10 sets it up. So Daniel chapter 10 reads like this. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was also called Belteshazzar. This message was true and concerned a great war. He understood the message and gained insight by the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three whole weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine came to my lips, nor did I anoint myself with oil until the end of those three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, I was beside the great river, the Tigris. I looked up and saw a man clothed in linen. Around his waist was a belt made of gold from Ufaz. His body resembled yellow jasper, and his face had an appearance like lightning. His eyes were like blazing torches. His arms and feet had the gleam of polished bronze. His voice thundered forth like the sound of a large crowd. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see it. On the contrary, they were overcome with fright, ran away to hide. I alone was left to see the great, this great vision. My strength drained from me. My vigor disappeared. I was without energy. I listened to his voice, and as I did so, I fell into a trance-like sleep with my face to the ground. Then a hand touched me and set me on my hands and knees. And he said to me, Daniel, you are of great value. Understand the words that I'm about to speak to you. So stand up, for I have now been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up shaking. Then he said to me, don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the very first day that you applied your mind to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. I have come in response to your words. However, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was opposing me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the leading princes, came to help me because I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to future days. While he was saying this to me, I was flat on the ground and unable to speak. Then one who appeared to be a human being was touching my lips. I opened my mouth and started to speak saying to the one who was standing before me, Sir, due to the vision, anxiety has gripped me, and I have no strength. How, sir, am I able to speak with you? My strength is gone. I am breathless. Then the one who appeared to be a human being touched me again and strengthened me. He said to me, Don't be afraid, you who are valued. Peace be to you. Be strong. Be really strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened. <clears throat> I said, sir, you may speak now, for you have given me strength. And he said, do you know why I've come to you? Now I am about to return to engage in battle with the prince of Persia. When I go, the prince of Greece is coming. However, I will first tell you what is written in a dependable book. There is no one who strengthens me against these princes, except Michael, your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood to strengthen him and to provide protection for him. Now I will tell you the truth. Wow, what a chapter, Hampton. Yes. So now and then in the scriptures, you get a peek 
behind the curtain, if you will, right? You can see into heaven. Most of the time, the scriptures are from heaven, but they're speaking on earth. Right. Right. Some, some passages, though, you get a glimpse at the larger universe and what's, what's going on beyond our normal perceptions, right? Our vision. Like Daniel said, you know, the other guys ran away. They never saw the angel. Daniel saw him and heard him. So it is possible to do that, but most of the time that stuff's hidden from our perceptions. So how fascinating that behind the scenes you have these battles going on, right? The dip for control of the different nations. Yeah. Makes you so, wonder you know, who's the angel in charge of North America. Right. Right. <laughs> That's or South right. America or whatever. Yeah. So as we read on today's material, keep that in mind. Very interesting. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to do chapter 11. It's called New World Conquests and Colonies. And I always want to read the first couple of paragraphs, just his introduction, so I'll do that. Yes. The age of discovery involved much more for Europeans than reaching India and finding the New World. Of equally great importance was the discovery of the extraordinary military superiority they held over the rest of the world. A few Portuguese ships repeatedly sank huge Muslim fleets in the Indian Ocean, and the Portuguese needed only small forces to overawe Eastern rulers. And in the New World, tiny bands of Spanish conquistadors prevailed against incredible odds. It was surely to be expected that Europeans would use their advantages over other societies to exploit them, especially given the enormous riches involved. Initially, the Spanish were the major colonial presence in the New World, with the Portuguese controlling Brazil, but other Europeans soon took up New World colonizing as well, the French, English, and Dutch. Nearly at once, New World colonialism resulted in the resumption of slavery by Europeans. Before it ended, millions of enslaved Africans were transported across the Atlantic, huge numbers of them dying during the voyage. This did not, however, introduce slavery into the Western Hemisphere. In pre-Columbian times, indigenous societies widely practiced slavery, from the Incas in the South to the Indians of the Pacific Northwest. Of course, Western colonialism had other dreadful consequences. Scores of native cultures were smashed and millions of people perished, mostly from diseases to which they lacked immunity. This story is sad enough without the immense amount of misrepresentation, exaggeration, and plain foolishness that has been added during the past century. <clears throat> so, wait, you're telling me that slavery was already here? That's what he said. I wonder if he has any evidence of that. Oh, certainly. So. <laughs> So I, he goes into a lot of detail about the um, the conquest of South America and um, Mexico, Central America, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail there. But uh, he, you know, Columbus came and he basically conquered, um, well, discovered, and took over Hispaniola. Yeah, and um, one thing I found interesting was that. They had a thousand Spanish, so basically soldiers and and bureaucrats, with about twelve thousand African slaves on that island. Right, and uh, so I I thought those numbers were interesting. And then he talks about Cortez going into Mexico and conquering the Aztecs, and he had only six hundred men. I think he said there were like fifteen on horses, um, and the Aztecs had tens of thousands and yes. so the question was how could that how could they take over that many and he said there's two reasons one was they had better weapons um, and the other and more important one maybe is that they enlisted other tribes to help right and so the question was why would other tribes help 
And it was because the Aztecs captured and sacrificed tens of thousands of those other tribes people per year. And I wanted to read this one paragraph that says, how many victims were consumed by these ceremonies? In 1487, well before any contact with Europeans, the Aztecs inaugurated their great new Templo mayor. The day began with four lines of victims, each line stretching for two miles. So if you had 1,760 yards and you had people lined up, you know, you would have at least that many people in line. Right? Yes. Right. You know, so... What, yeah, hundreds 10, 000, of thousands of people. 10,000 people. At least. You know, in those, yeah. Were so, sacrificed that day. Yeah, the historian and anthropologist Inga Clendenin has estimated the total number sacrificed on that occasion as 20,000, although others have placed the number as high as 80,000. Mm-hmm. This was, of course, a one-time occasion. During regular festivals, the numbers killed at the particular temple probably ran about 2,000 a day. And there were hundreds of these sacrificial sites. You can't hardly contemplate that. Yeah, they said they they discovered these piles of skulls that were kind of arranged like a pyramid. And they could count them because of the way they were stacked. And there were like 100,000 skulls in those pyramids. And there were many of those right so, so when the so when the cortez and crew said hey you know you want to help us get rid of the the aztecs they they, they were did. All, they were happy <laughs> so there's a movie i know you're not a movie guy but there's a movie <laughs> mel gibson did called apocalypto yeah i remember the i have not seen it of course but i remember that it was out well west Studi, S-T-U-D-I. I maybe maybe it's study, but I think it's study. And uh, he was the bad Indian in. Um, uh, okay, I've just gone blank. What was, movie? Gets a movie. what was the movie? The movie thing. Mo- Last of the Mohicans. He was the bad Indian in that, and he's he was the he was the only character in this apocalypto movie that I recognized. But he was the he was the bad Aztec guy. And he was okay. rounding up all the villagers. I And they had the temple scene. This is a gruesome movie. But the temple scene that he that Stark describes, where they would take them up to the top of the, the pyramid, yes. Yes. cut off their heads, and roll the body down. Right. And then the people would cut up the bodies and haul them off to be eaten. Yeah, I mean, you can scarcely contemplate that. Yeah. Wow. So, so anyway, uh, I thought that was a very interesting section. Well, so now, in my mind, passively absorbed from our culture, I thought these were noble savages. Well. Maybe I, the savage part is correct, but not the noble part. Yeah, I think the noble savage <laughs> thing is really more a North American okay. Indian thing. I may be wrong, but um, and we'll get to that a little bit later in this chapter. Okay. Uh, And then the Pizarro went to Peru and he had like 180 men and he was outnumbered about 400 to one, but they captured the king who was planning on killing them and they just beat him to the punch basically. Um, Well, let me, let me read because he says it so well, Hampton. It's so funny. So he goes, uh, so Pizarro, you know, defeated the Incas with 167 conquistadors, only about eight of them having arquebuses. That's a, a ty- type of primitive gun. Uh, and four very small cannons, Pizarro marched on the huge Incan Empire. 167 guys. <laughs> the Incan Empire which stretched for 2,500 miles along the west coast of South America. There, faced with about 80,000 battle-hardened Incan warriors, Pizarro triumphed without losing a single man. Isn't that crazy? That's just so hard to conceive. 
yeah, it's amazing. So uh, the latecomer section talks about the French and the Dutch and the English. And they, you know, they came later and they all ended up in North America. And yeah. so, you know, he goes into detail about the French up in Canada and, um, you know, some of the different settlements that they had, the Dutch up in, I guess, New York area. And then he moves on to the next section, which is slavery. And I felt like that was where we should spend a little bit more time. Sure. Um, he says, as will be seen, the arrival of Europeans in the New World brought with it diseases such as smallpox and measles, to which the Indians had no natural immunity, dying by the millions. Much less notice has been taken of the fact that, especially in the Caribbean, there were tropical diseases such as yellow fever, which originated in Africa, to which Europeans had no immunity, and they too died in large numbers. It was yeah. against this background that the European colonists confronted the need for laborers. Yeah. So as a tangent to that, as we're moving through this material, um, here's a trivia question. Okay. So Cartier is the guy who named Canada, Jacques Cartier. And he got that name from the Indian word Kannada, right? Canada, Kannada. So Kannada means village. So how interesting, the country of Canada is the Indian word for village. Yeah, my uh, my friend from Canada said the way you spell Canada is C-A-N-A-D-A. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And how about the... Uh, so our state of Louisiana is named after who? I don't remember. Oh, Louis the 14th. Louis. Yeah, Louis the 14th. There we go. There you go. Good job. Yeah. So the slave trade section, he says, despite being politically correct, it is absurd to claim that Europeans forced slave trading on Africans. The enslavement and sale of black Africans by other black Africans goes back at least to ancient Egypt. The pharaohs bought large numbers of black slaves. Moreover, as the historian John Thornton pointed out, slavery was intrinsic to many, if not all, pre-colonial African societies. By the time the New World was discovered, the exportation of black slaves had been going on for several thousand years. In recent centuries, mostly to Islamic societies and African dealers were well-organized and prepared to offer a seemingly endless supply of prime laborers. Um, he says then, from the first shipment in about 1510 until the very end, when Cuba abolished the slave trade in 1868, about nine and a half million slaves reached the New World slave markets, meaning that at least 50 million, and probably more, began the journey from the African interior. The distinguished historian Philip Curtin calculated that of the roughly nine and a half million who survived the trip, about 400,000 went to North America, 3.6 million to Brazil, 1.6 million to Spanish colonies, and the remaining 3.8 million to British, French, Dutch, and Danish colonies in the Caribbean. And I just found that really interesting because only 5% of the slaves made it to North America. But, you know, you talk about the social imaginary, the way it's been presented to us is like Americans are, you know, the only ones who had slaves. They had by far the least amount of all those areas, by far, right? Yeah. They didn't even have not even half a million, right? Yeah. Brazil, 3.6 million. 1.6 million to the Spanish colonies, 3.8 million to British, French, Dutch, and Danish colonies. America had far less than any other place. Yeah. It's, and like you said, contrary to the social imaginary. Yeah. The next section is powerless popes. You know, <laughs> the popes were saying 
they had yeah. the right idea. Yeah, yeah. They said, hey, no more slavery guys. And the pretty much the people in the New World just ignored them. But yeah. I thought that was interesting. They had the Catholic slave codes. Yeah. And, you know, they had rules, code nor, you know, the black code. Black code, yeah. Um, and it required that masters have their slaves baptized, provide them with religious instruction, permit them to get married, prohibited selling of family members separately, exempted them from working on Sundays and holidays, required certain amounts of food and clothing, and required that they care for the disabled and the elderly. Yeah, and you could buy your own freedom, right? Because on your days where you weren't working, you could work something else for your own pay. Yeah. And eventually buy your own freedom. Well, and so... um he, I'm going to just read this paragraph. It's, uh, he says, far too many recent historians say that legal codes didn't matter. But David Bryan Davis argued that no claim for better treatment of slaves in French and Spanish colonies could be assumed because of lack of detailed statistical information. He was wrong. Reliable statistics established that the death rate for slaves was substantially higher in English than in French and Spanish colonies. In addition, there were some long available statistics that somehow no historian had noticed until I did so. Compare <laughs> the situation in heavily Catholic Louisiana, which with that in the rest of the South, which was largely Protestant. Louisiana came under the French Code Noir in 1724. Then when Louisiana shifted to Spanish control in 1769, slaves were subject to the Codigo. Same thing, just a different word for the same thing. Which included the right to buy their freedom. France regained Louisiana in 1800, and even after the area was sold to the United States in 1803, Catholic norms concerning slavery were deeply rooted there. Those norms had a real impact. The U.S. Census of 1830 found that a far higher percentage of blacks in Louisiana were free, 13.2%, than in any other American slave state, all of them overwhelmingly Protestant. The contrast is especially sharp in comparison with other neighboring states having similar plantation economies. Alabama, 1.3%, Mississippi, 0.8%, and Georgia, 1.1%. In New Orleans in 1830, an astonishing 41.7% of the city's blacks were free compared with 1.2% in nearby Natchez, 1% in Montgomery, and 39 in Nashville. Historians like Davis could have easily consulted such census data to recognize the truth. Slave codes mattered. I had no idea. I, was, I thought that no, was really interesting. I didn't either. So if slavery <clears throat> is this worldwide phenomenon, even today, there's much more of that than people realize. What what was it that really lifted people out of slavery? Well, I mean, I'd say the Bible. Right. Right. These are Catholic popes that have the Bible as their worldview and they're writing codes for slavery. Right. They're not actually changing the economy. They're just saying, well, given this situation, you need to treat it this way. And eventually people are lifted out of slavery. It's right. the Bible that's doing that. Yeah. Um, next was the assessing of the consequences of colonialism. He says it is time for a final assessment. Was the European settlement of the Americas truly a brutal act of genocide the destruction of a more peaceful world populated by noble savages. And I really like this section on the noble savage. And maybe it's let's see my, how noble they were. <laughs> yeah, well, my teenage years were spent living on a ranch, riding, cutting horses, and I'd wear my pistol even on the while I was riding my horse. Yeah. And herding cows, baling hay, and all that. And so I was a big Louis Lamore fan, and I read all of his books probably at least twice back then. And 
So I think he actually had a pretty good portrayal of the Indians, pretty accurate. But traditionally, in especially in Hollywood, there have been three stereotypes that have been portrayed of the Indian. The bloodthirsty savage, the noble savage, and the drunken Indian. Yeah. And and I think in the early Westerns, there were a lot of bloodthirsty savages riding around the wagon trains, you know, and shouting the war cry and shooting at the settlers. But that changed to the noble savage around 1970. And you remember the ad where the Indian is paddling his canoe across the, the one of the Great Lakes or something. Huh. And he's got the tear running down his cheek as he looked at the pollution. Huh. I don't, I'm not a TV. That? I'm not a TV guy. Oh, anymore. come on. You were, you, you were, that was, that was <laughs> 1970. You were what? Teenager. <laughs> I was 12. <laughs> okay. So that guy was named iron. I looked this up because I was thinking about, you know, when did this noble savage thing, you know, social imaginary get started? Right. I remembered that ad and his name was iron eyes. Cody. And he was not an Indian. He was Italian. <laughs> but he had over he had over 100 roles as an Indian in Hollywood. So, he yeah. just had the visage that they yes. conceived of as Indian. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, there's the Dances with Wolves, another movie with Kevin Costner. And he, you know, is out there in the middle of the wilderness and with the buffalo. And he befriends, or the Indians befriend him and take care of him. And he ends up, you know, becoming one of them, you know. But, you know, they're this noble tribe. Yes. So, anyway, those are just some things that I thought about in just my experience that portrayed the noble savage. But back to Stark, he says that historians have taught that Native Americans were peaceful ecology-minded people living in harmony with nature and each other. Yeah, Pete. So <laughs> let's pause just for a second, because <clears throat> so I get back to our, you know, you're, you're railing on the social imaginary and well done, by the way. Uh, but back to worldview, human beings are sinful ever since Genesis 3, right? The fallen nature. Why wouldn't the in why would the Indians be any different? You're as a people group, you some of the Indians are gonna be great people. Some are gonna be terrible, but overall their culture is gonna reflect fallen human nature. That's just a biblical worldview. Yeah. Oh well, we mentioned Rousseau earlier. I should read that one little there he is, yeah. He says, um, among the influential proponents of the doctrine of the noble savage was the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, oh, who glorified humans in the state of nature, to <laughs> which his friend Voltaire responded, never has so much intelligence been employed to render us stupid. Yeah, <laughs> Unfortunately, this stupidity reached new heights late in the 20th century as common sense and evidence were overwhelmed by political correctness. How often have we seen that? That's a good way to say that in that sense. Common sense. What did, what did it say? Evidence. And evidence were overwhelmed by political correctness. That's a good way to say that. Maybe I should make that the, the footer of my emails that go out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, um, so the, the, the thing that is taught is that Europeans came along and taught them warfare and how to scalp their enemies and that kind of thing. But um, the archaeological data that they've discovered shows that, you know, they found mass grave from the 1300s, long before Europeans got here, and showed, you know, that there were 90% were scalped. And why would they yeah. have mass graves, you know, unless they're right. in war? So the, yeah, the point he's making is that, you know, the politically correct guys are going to say the Europeans taught the Indians to scalp. No, they didn't. Right. In 1300, <laughs> in massive amounts, the Indians were doing that. Well, and they found many sites where they can tell that the human bones were boiled or cooked. Eaten. Yeah, and, eaten. And eaten. Yeah. You know, yeah, cannibalism and, and so rampant. Was, 
right? Yeah. So, um, let's see. He says that it's also become a virtual article of faith that unlike the white man, Native Americans lived in close harmony with nature and had a reverence <laughs> for the earth that prevented them from doing damage to the ecology. Some writers even have claimed that this is why they chose not to develop technology as the Europeans had done. So. Yeah, they're they're eco eco Indians. <laughs> yeah, right? and he well, goes on to talk about the Mayans and how they destroyed their land and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, they weren't very eco friendly, really. They, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> <clears throat> um, he points out that the North American Indians also had slaves, and that most historians either deny it or dismiss it as saying it wasn't really slavers; they just had captives from their you know, previous battles, which they didn't have. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Right. And he said they were just as brutal to their slaves. Um, there was something else in here about, oh, the finally there is the charge of genocide. Everyone agrees that lacking any immunity to communicable European diseases, such as smallpox, measles, and typhus, the indigenous population of the Americas suffered a catastrophic death rate. Millions died within a few years after contact. In recent decades, however, many have characterized this calamity as a genocide and identified Columbus as the chief villain. Native American activist Russell Means charged, Columbus makes Hitler look like a juvenile delinquent. The title of David D. Stannard's 1997 book says it all, American Holocaust, The Conquest of the New World. And then he says, consider the unknown captain of the galley that rode into the port of Messina in October of 1347, aboard which were rats infested with fleas carrying the Black Plague. Should we identify him as the perpetrator of genocide and worse than Hitler? Why not? The galley captain unintentionally and unknowingly transmitted an epidemic disease to a population lacking immunity. So did Columbus. What happened in the New World was an unpreventable cat catastrophe. Grumblings about the intentional spread of disease are unwarranted. As the historian Stafford Poole put it, the term genocide applies to a calculated, deliberate extermination of an identifiable people for racial or other reasons. There are other terms to describe what happened in the Western Hemisphere, but genocide is not one of them. Yeah, very good. You know, don't get me on a rant here. I know you're trying to rabbit trail me, <laughs> but, but um, you know, there is genocide going on today right in front of our eyes. Yeah, on a on a massive scale. But, well, you know, now's not the time to dwell on that, but that is happening. Um, yeah, and you know, we're to be oh, response as the news gets out more and more. It's like, is anybody right? right. So he, let me read a little bit of a paragraph. We're kind of picking and choosing what data to present. So, um, but here here's one that struck me. He has this paragraph that begins, the truth is that slavery was widespread in pre-Columbian North America. So pause there. It's, it's not that the Europeans brought slavery here. It was here. Right. In, in massive quantities, <clears throat> at least 39 societies had slavery according to the standard cross-cultural files. And slavery among the Northwest Indians was as brutal as anywhere else. Bondage was not only lifelong, but also hereditary, as the anthropologist Leland Donald showed. So it, it was here <laughs> in spades yeah. before the Europeans came. So... Go ahead. Well, then the question is, he ends with is why were the Americas behind? And yeah, why were they stone? Why were they, they literally? Kind, yeah, they literally kind of were age. in the Stone Age. Yeah. The stone knives, stone tipped arrows, you know. Yeah. 
And Why? they try to tell us that it was because they liked being in the Stone Age. Um, but, you know, when they saw horses, they wanted them. When they saw the steel knives of the... They the traded for They traded yeah. for those because they said, man, these are much better. And then <laughs> yeah. they wanted they wanted rifles. So Yeah. Um, oh, well, I, I guess we could read this. He says, these days, whenever anyone asks why the inhabitants of the Western Hemisphere were so far behind Europe, at least in terms of science and technology, the usual response is insulting. Indians were far too wise to pursue such a foolish and wicked path. And uh, <clears throat> he said, the sales says that they could certainly have would have developed tech, advanced technology if they felt any need to do so. If they did not anywhere use the plow, for instance, that may have been because their method of breaking the soil with a planting stick worked just as well with a tenth of the effort, or because they had learned that opening up and turning over the whole field would only decrease nutrients and increase erosion, or because their thought world would not have allowed such disregardful violence. In the same paragraph, Sale touted the bow and arrow as far easier, faster, and safer than the musket. Sales, I love this, Sale's knowledge of farming equals his knowledge of weaponry. <laughs> mm. That reminds me of the Cajun that says, I see duck, I shoot, I miss, I shoot again and hit him in the same place. <laughs> his knowledge oh, of farming, his knowledge of farming, none equals his knowledge of weaponry. <clears throat> yeah, he good. Did not plow because it is impossible to do so with wooden implements. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, and how about so? In the middle of that paragraph, there's a great. He used a different word, but what he meant was worldview, and he said their thought world. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's worldview that they, they didn't have a biblical worldview. That's why they didn't. Um, that's why they remained in the Stone Age. What is Hampton? What is the very first? Uh, I guess you could say command given to humankind. In, in the Bible. Uh be fruitful and multiply. Well, there's that. Yes. And, then, and it's and then combined the, with that one. Take, it's take dominion over there. Yeah. Rule over yeah. the earth. And they didn't. The earth kind of ruled over them. Right. Instead mm -hmm. of them ruling over the earth. And that's a biblical worldview. They don't have that. So that's why they remained in the Stone Age. Yeah, he says here, it goes, what seems even more remarkable is that this has become a semi-taboo topic. It's taken, <laughs> it is taken up only in books by generalists having secure circumstances, as in the present instance. Tenure, right? Right, that's what he means. There is no ongoing discussion in scholarly journals and outlets sustained by academics, many of them lacking tenure and most of them vulnerable to politically correct criticism. Yep. Yeah. So our, you know, our institutions of higher learning have been uh, conquered and political correctness reigns there. That doesn't mean there aren't vestiges of sanity like Stark for instance, but basically they control the institution of higher learning. Right. So, and look, Hampton, one of our favorite economists is here. Did you see the reference to Thomas Sowell? Yeah. Yeah. How about that? So, no, nice. Well, his final thing is uh, perhaps the primary conclusion to be drawn from these historical episodes involves the fundamental similarity of human nature. Just uh -huh. as there is nothing surprising about the fact that the Mayans, Aztecs, and Incas imposed great empires on those unable to resist them. So too, it was to be expected that Europeans would impose empires on the people of the New World especially since those indigenous peoples lacked metal weapons, but were not short of precious metals. It surely is an instance of moral progress that colonial, 
colonialism has become unacceptable, at least in most Western societies. But it is pointlessly anachronistic to suppose that 16th century Europeans, Aztecs, or Incas should have known better. Yeah. So. He's he's good at summarizing, you know, large thoughts. Um, yeah. He's, he's very good at that. You, you can almost pick his sentences up. They're worth picking apart almost word by word sometimes. He's, yeah. I give high praise for Stark. I, I think this has you know, been a, an enlightening book. Yeah. Or, you know hear the truth there you go and he you know he admits it's bad you know it's slavery's bad and and that kind of stuff but it's not we're not america and you know is not the bad guy <laughs> we're just one of them correct <laughs> very so. good okay well i guess that's it for this chapter we'll talk to you you want to have anything else you want to say? No, I just wanted to say, uh, well, I, do, do you think we have time to read Philemon? Or maybe we'll do that at the start of our next podcast. Um, yeah, we can. It's up to you. you want to do well, it we can do it now. We were just talking about slavery. Philemon well, about slavery. I think it fits. You know, I just love uh, reading the scripture, just reading it, Right. Mm-hmm. This so this is a one chapter book Philemon. It's the Apostle Paul writing this letter. It goes as follows: From Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-laborer, to Apthia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house. Grace to you. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that the faith you share with us may deepen your understanding of every blessing that belongs to you in Christ. I have a great joy and encouragement because of your love for the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So also, so although I have quite a lot of confidence in Christ and could command you to do what is proper, I'd rather appeal to you on the basis of love. I, Paul, an old man, and even now a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus, am appealing to you concerning my child, whose spiritual father I have become during my imprisonment, that is Onesimus, one who was formerly useless to you, but is now useful to you and me. I've sent him, who is my very heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he could serve me in your place during my imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. However, without your consent, I didn't want to do anything so that your <coughs> good deed would not be out of compulsion, but from your own willingness. For Perhaps it was for this reason that he was separated from you for a little while so that you would have him back eternally, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dear brother. He's especially so to me and even more so to you now both humanly speaking and in the Lord. Therefore, if you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. Now, if he's defrauded you of anything or owes you anything, charge what he owes to me. I, Paul, have written this letter with my own hand, and I'll repay it. I could also mention that you owe me your very self. Yes, brother, let me have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I was confident that you would obey, I wrote to you because I knew that you would do even more than what I'm asking you to do. The same time also, prepare a place for me to stay, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given back to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. Mark. 
Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-laborers, greet you too. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so what really lifts people out of slavery is Christianity. And apart from that, you, you won't lift people out of slavery because that, that's part of human nature to dominate other people. Right. So and thanks so, for, thanks for letting know, they, read that. Christianity um, expects you to change from the inside, recognizing that the, the slave is your brother in Christ. And, and then, right. you know, they didn't, it wasn't a political slave revolt. Right. They didn't, they didn't want that to be, be, it would have been maybe squashed, you know, if, it, right. if it had started as, as that. You're so, right. Anyway, very good. Very, very applicable to our topic. Thank you, Hampton. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. No!